I think the buying process is very non-linear. If you really want to figure out if you're getting lucky, stumbling into it, or if you're influencing the outcome, I would say go back to some of the deals that have already closed. You had a solid champion in, in play and then ask them, could you bring up and show me some of the memos, the decks, the email threads that you were having behind the scenes that I wasn't a part of and see how different their language is, how different their messaging is. And so the degree of overlap, that's the data mm -hmm. on are you influencing this or are you getting lucky? Hi, friends. Welcome to the WinRate Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Nate Nasrallah. And Nate is one of my guests on this episode of the WinRate Podcast. Nate Nasrallah is co-founder of Fluent. Fluent helps you generate written business cases for every champion you sell with, so you stop losing deals when you're not in the room. My other guest today for this really interesting discussion about sales effectiveness, the buyer experience and increasing win rates are Andrew Peterson. Andrew is the co-founder of Closed. Closed is one of the great sponsors and partners of this podcast. Closed offers an innovative software and services platform for win-loss analysis that helps companies uncover the real reasons why you win and you lose. Also joined by David Kirkjian. David is founder of Master Messaging, and Master Messaging helps clients increase their revenue by mastering the ability to elevate their value. Now, one listener note before we jump into today's discussion. Mentioned before, I love your questions. If you have questions about B2B selling, sales effectiveness, or anything about sales, how to increase your win rate that you'd like to have answered either by me or one of the guests on the program, please submit those questions to me at via email at winratepodcast at gmail.com, or you can DM me on LinkedIn, just find Andy Paul. I'd love to hear from you. Okay, if you're ready, let's jump into the discussion. Welcome everyone. I appreciate you joining me for another episode of the WinRate podcast. And yeah, everybody just take a minute, introduce themselves. It's uh, more than the introduction that was just heard. So David, if you could start. Yeah, David Kirchin, uh, founder of a sales consultancy called Master Messaging. Founded Master Messaging 11 years ago on the heels of 35 years in corporate America, either selling or leading sales teams, working with some notable companies like AT&T, CareerBuilder, and then made the decision 11 years ago uh, to spend more time with sales professionals, helping them uh, get better and, and get better results. And one of the unique things that we do at Master Messaging is everything that we teach sales professionals is based on behavioral psychology. So looking forward to hanging out with you guys this afternoon. Gosh, I'll be on our best behavior then. Nate, you're next. Thanks, Andy. Always a joy to see you. Oh, I'm Nate Nasrallah. I founded a uh, company called Fluent. And we focus on helping enterprise sales teams stop losing deals when they're not in the room and kind of the big focus that I write, teach, and then we build products on all day, every day is about this idea that sales reps don't close deals, buyers do, because they're in the room when a decision is being made. So we go deep on the art of writing in sales to help guide those conversations with a, a written business case and a message. So what a um, concept, shocking concept that there's not a right? closer. That's right. That's right. Closing is not an activity that sales reps can do because they are not there when the decision they're is not made. There. I know. I've had that conversation with sales managers many times when they're talking about, oh, we need to hire a closer. I'm just like, that, that's the exact question I always ask them and I have for years. It's like, so how often have you been in the room when the decision's actually made? That's right. That's right. And yeah, look at, I've sold the better part of a billion dollars in, in stuff. And it's like, yeah, almost never. I can't even recall a time. Right. You've it's, not that I didn't, it's not that I didn't know when the moment hit that we were going to win, but right. that's different than, yeah. All right, Andrew. Awesome. Yeah, I'm Andrew Peterson. I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of a company called Closed. We provide software and services to sales teams to help them with win-loss analysis capturing data and analyzing why they actually win and lose deals. It's something I got into because I was in sales leadership at a tech company called Qualtrics, and we had a tough time really getting to the bottom of why we're winning and losing deals so that we could take the right measures to enable our reps and win more deals. I left and founded Closed back in 2017. We work with close to 300 companies, helping them address this challenge. And... Closed is also a generous sponsor of this program. Thank you, Andrew, for that as well. All right. First, first sort of broad question for everybody is what's one thing you think about sales that maybe no one else really appreciates in sales success? Oh, I want to jump all over that one. All right, David, you start. 
All right. So you heard me say that the things that we teach is based on behavioral psychology. Okay. And so we've had the opportunity to work with close to 200 companies, thousands of sales reps over 11 years. And I always ask the question, is communicating value important in a selling conversation? And of course, everybody looks at me like, of course it's, yeah, that, it's crucial. And then I ask the question, hey, from a scientific standpoint, can you tell me how a human being perceives value? Nobody's ever gotten the right answer. Daniel Kahneman, one of the foremost renowned behavioral psychologists in the world, wrote a book called Thinking Fast, Leaking Slow. Yep. He cracked the code on how human beings perceive value. It's in a contrasting worldview. It's literally, this is what your world looks like without my product, and this is what your world looks like with my product. And it's in the side-by-side -side comparison of those two that people perceive value. Now, the output of that is going to be different for different human beings. Obviously, a CEO is going to perceive value different than a CRO, or, but the mechanism that happens in their brain is the same. Okay. I, I, you, you may not believe me if I say this, but my guess was going to be contrast. Was like it? People see something in a certain way. Everybody has their own worldview and they are always comparing and updating kind of that mental model, if you will, as compared to new information coming in. And so it's like black and white is very easy, shades of gray, very tough. I will say I have read that book. It was well over a decade ago. So maybe there was like something that that put it there. And so my source was the same. Yeah. But that's very cool to hear you say. And it's kind of part of why we talk about like the cost of a problem, ROI. Most people will gravitate toward one. And it's never like an either or thing. It's both and because it's the difference between those two mm -hmm. measures that value is in that gap. So yeah. that's a it's a pretty cool topic to lead off with, David. So, yeah, I sort of look at value two different levels, though. Right. Because I think there's value in terms of the solution. But then. People also look at value they're getting as part of the process of making the decision. And so I focus more on that second value of what's the value that the buyer is experiencing as part of this experience of dealing with the sellers. And I go with the jobs to be done theory of what really constitutes value, which is progress, right? I sort mm -hmm. of hired you as a seller to help me make this decision. And so as a result of us interacting, Am I making progress toward completing this task? We saw this job we set out for ourselves. So I think it works on two levels. I think it's important for sellers to understand both because increasingly we see decisions are being driven by the experience of buying, not just by the value of the pro perceived value of the product itself. You're bringing up jobs to be done theory here, which is like a love language for me. I'm <laughs> selling, but I'm also building products, right? In my sure. job. And that's if folks aren't familiar with it, part of the framework is there's both the functional job, but then there's the emotional job. Right. And so I, I agree, like a company may be measuring value in terms of dollars and cents and this costs us this, we get this tomorrow. But within moving from cost today, payoff tomorrow, there's that experience or the emotional job. And I was talking with my co-founder about this yesterday, where I was looking at the kind of the latest usage data in our software. And I'm like, I don't understand why some of these users are paying us monthly their usage data is like very low. Their NPS score is a 10 and I get messages from them saying, I love the product. And I'm like, John, this doesn't add up for me. How are we delivering value for these people? And I was getting very frustrated and spun up on They're it. They're not using he's it. Like, hey, right. And he's yeah. like, Nate, and mind you, this is my technical founder, the engineer who's talking right. to me. He's like, Nate, you're totally forgetting the emotional value that these people are getting seeing themselves as becoming writers, seeing themselves as developing champions just by association of, I have this support when I need it, available mm -hmm. and on demand. And it, it took me a while to come back to it, but he was pointing out that second layer of jobs to be done theory, which is the emotional, not the functional job. That's fascinating. I, I actually have a question for you guys uh, sure. as we're talking through this. Would you agree with me saying that in many cases, sales reps that are inexperienced and maybe aren't talented in this ability to develop this contrast and convey this value in terms of what life will be like with the solution versus without. Do you think there's a lot of reps that just stumble their way into success and win deals just because the customer's figuring this out for themselves and the reps just kind of along for the ride? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Nate, Nate, you start. Go ahead. You're not oh, in your yeah. head. For yeah. I think a lot of deals, probably most sellers really are just fortunate that the customer is doing the math in their own heads. They're building this business case, this value prop in their own heads. 
kind of gathering the information they need and coming to the conclusion themselves and the reps just kind of along the ride. A little more radical. They make the decision. Is I, I don't think that's the inexperienced reps. I think one of the great unsaid things in sales, unspoken truths about sales is just how much luck and circumstances plays into success. And I think to a large degree, we're all entering into processes with unique buyers that have the unique processes and we're all sort of to some one, lesser extent or so, we're stumbling through them. And maybe I think as, as you get more experienced, you're more adaptable, maybe that the people mm-hmm. with less experienced are less adaptable to changing circumstances. But I don't know, I, as, as much as I read stuff about frameworks and this is what happens. And Nate, you wrote about something recently. Oh, here's the five steps, things that all have to, and it's like, sure, but let's look at the data. Is, is that really what happens? <laughs> Conceptually, we think maybe it does, but I think it's a lot more messy than that. I think the buying process is very nonlinear in that sense. But to your point around data, picking up data and Andrew, maybe a a nod to your work at closed. Like if you really want to figure out if you're getting lucky, if you're stumbling into it, or if you're influencing the outcome, I would say, go back to some of the deals that have already closed. You had a Mm -hmm. solid champion in, in play and then ask them, Hey, could you bring up and show me some of the memos, the materials, the decks, the email threads Mm -hmm. that you were having behind the scenes that I wasn't a part of? and see how different their language is, how different their messaging is. Are they drawing on the things that you Mm -hmm. shared with them? Most times they're running their own process on their own and there's very little overlap to what you're talking about or sharing with them in your sales meetings and your sales emails. And so the degree of overlap, to me, that's the data Mm -hmm. on, are you influencing this or are you getting lucky? Uh, That's a a great point. So are they lucking into it or are they relying on the the buyer to, again, put all the data together. The, the, the interesting anecdote is when we would do workshops and we get to the end of the workshop, we'll have sales professionals come up to us and go, a lot of the things that you're touching on from a behavioral psychology standpoint, I've done intuitively. I've found myself doing those things intuitively. Now that I understand the principle and the technique, I can do it more intentionally now. So they have this aha moment, especially with the contrasting worldview. They're like, Okay, I get it. Yeah, I've kind of done that. Now I can do more. I do it more intentionally and have more success. Yeah. And Nate, you're, to your point about the going back in retrospect after a deal is done and taking the time to, to reflect and ideally get some input and feedback from the buyer on why they made that decision is so critical, but so few sales reps and sales leaders actually do it. Sales reps oftentimes we find are totally blind to why buyers really make the decision that they make. A lot of companies have like in, in their CRM, like Salesforce, they'll have like a, a loss reason or win reason reporting structure for reps to kind of pick a reason why they think the deal is won or lost. And obviously there's tons of flaws in that methodology, but what's fascinating is because of what we do, we can go back and compare what did the reps say was the primary driver of this decision? Versus what does the buyer say when they're actually given the opportunity to weigh in and share their experience? And in comparing that across thousands of deals, 85% of the time, the rep's explanation, the rep's driver of the decision didn't match any of the factors that the buyer cited. So a lot of reps are just totally clueless about what the real motive was for that buyer to make that buying decision. It's an interesting question on that part, Andrew, because so, with your experience of interest and your take on it is, is what you're seeing is because I've used that story since you first, you and Nate, you're vaguely first shared that with me, your head of content. I've told it to lots of people because I think it's a fabulous story and it's a fabulous stat. So a lot of reaction that comes back is that's because the sellers are too embarrassed to put the right reason in as opposed to just being clueless. I'm sort of interested in your take. How much is they really don't know or they are just, they know and they're embarrassed. I personally, I think it's, they just don't know heavily weighted, yeah. but I'm interested in your guys' take on that. Yeah. There's, there can be bias in that. Like one story that comes to mind for my days at Qualtrics, we had a sales opportunity in play would have been the biggest deal in Qualtrics history. This is probably back in 2012. It was Hyatt hotels group. Mm-hmm. It was to, for Qualtrics to implement a big, like customer experience measurement program, like NPS surveys at every touch point with guests at, right. at all the hotels for, for Hyatt worldwide. And this is a seven figure deal at a time when Qualtrics sold very few of those, if any, and we lost the deal. 
And I was the sales leader. One of my AEs was on that deal. And frankly, to be honest, like, I didn't think we had a shot at winning the deal from the very beginning. Like, I didn't right. think it lined up well with our capability to deliver. But our CEO was like, of course, we're going to win this. We have to win this. Like, we pulled a postmortem together after, like, everybody that was involved in the deal. There was a ton of customization we would have had to do. So the professional services teams there, they'd filled out tons of questions in the RFP response, the custom work we would do. We all had our reason and we all went around the table and gave our own explanations for why the deal was lost. And at the end of that process, somebody in the room was like, why don't we just call Hyatt and ask? He's like, that's a great idea. So as the sales leader, I, I contact, they were very gracious. They're like, we're happy to jump on a call and talk through sure. it. No one in that particular case, when we went around the table, gave the same reason as what Hyatt gave. When we get on the phone with Hyatt, they're like, you guys weren't even considered as a finalist. I'm like, really? We thought we had a shot at winning this deal. We thought we were for sure a finalist. Like, we didn't even consider Qualtrics. Like, tell me more. They're like, we saw the price you quoted and it was a third of the price that any other vendors were quoting us. And so we just did, we didn't even dive in deep. We were like, there's no way they can deliver this complexity at that price point. So they don't understand our needs and they're not going to be able to deliver. So we didn't even look seriously at your response. No one around the table gave, said, I think it was pricing. I think we underquoted this deal. My tendency, Andy, like yours is to think like, I just think because Nate, to your point earlier, reps aren't in the room when these decisions get made. They can't be. And they, they really don't know. Buyers are playing poker during the buying process. They're not going to divulge any of the relevant details to the sales rep naturally. And so it's hard for a sales rep really to know what the right answer is when asked, why did they make this decision? So I think we expect too much of a sales rep to just magically have the right answer when, when they weren't there, they weren't present. Yeah, I have a, I have a different take on that, yeah. which is that it's certainly been my experience in working, again, large seven, eight, nine figure deals over the years is that what sellers generally aren't good at, and they can be trained to get better at it, is they never really uncovered what I call the one thing. And I found that every opportunity I worked, there was always one thing that was more important than every other thing. And you need to, as a seller, you need to discover what that one thing is and who it's most important to. And so often sellers just don't identify what that is. And they sort of, yeah, I tell a story about this deal, selling first like the first onboard on cruise ships sort of internet browsing. This was back a long time ago. As it be satellite delivered. And so we we're working with the sometimes largest cruise ship in Asia, cruise line in Asia. And we we're putting on the satellite terminals on all the ships. And we we're competing. We we're a startup. We we're competing against these big tech companies. And so they wanted voice over IP. They wanted in-room high-speed browsing, blah, 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 blah. And we worked our way through, we got down selected to the final two and they released this big RFP and this RFP had 300 lines and a compliance matrix. And I, I turned to the, the account rep and I said, these are not all equally important. We could say yes to all of them, still lose the deal. I said, what's the one that's most important? And he didn't have any idea. And I said, yeah, let's go talk to the CEO and find out. And he had a line into the CEO of the company. And so he actually got on plane, went back to Asia and talked to the CEO and they had this long meeting and what found out was the thing that was most important to him wasn't even in the RFP. All he cared about was make sure the satellite links never went down so that the real-time connection to the onboard casinos was never down because ah. he wanted to know to the minute how much money he was breaking in on the casinos, which is where they made all their money. It wasn't in the RFP. It's a great story. And now, a message from Closed. An often overlooked way to improve your win rate is to identify and close win-back opportunities. After conducting tens of thousands of buyer interviews, Closed has found that 10% of closed loss deals have the potential to be won back at some point in the future. Now, identifying these win-back opportunities early and knowing when and how to follow up could be worth millions. Closed recently helped one of their customers identify and win a $500,000 win-back opportunity within days of it being marked as closed lost. Closed automatically reached out to perform a win-loss interview when the deal was marked closed loss in the CRM. And the buyer said, well, actually, we're still interested and we're ready to sign the contract. 
closed is finding win-back deals on a daily basis for their clients, how about for you? To help you get started receiving the value of consistent, direct, candid feedback from your buyers, Closed is offering all my listeners a free gift. Just go to winlosstoolkit.com and they'll send you a bunch of valuable tools to help you get your win-loss program started. The toolkit includes a comprehensive guide to running a successful win-loss program, an ROI calculator, and they'll even perform your first win-loss interview for free to help you see the value of getting feedback directly from your buyers. So to claim your gift, visit winlosstoolkit.com. That's winlosstoolkit.com. And now a message from Alego. Are you struggling to make your sales team more efficient and improve time to productivity? With Alego's modern revenue enablement platform, marketing sales and enablement teams get on the same page for continuous improvement. So break through all the noise and deliver the buying experiences that your buyers today demand. Enable faster ramp times for your rep and more revenue for your business in less time. See how it all can work for you. Go to alego.com slash demo. That is alego.com slash demo. The, the one big thing, it, it reminds me of talking with the CEO of SendGrid and developing the relationship there. He had this phrase, which is why it sticks with me. It's very memorable. It was make the mail move, make the mail move. That was mm-hmm. the one big thing that he cared about. So anybody who came in to talk to him about any project or budget request, is it driving more accounts, sending more email per account? more successfully, like higher deliverability. Right. And if you weren't explicitly talking about make the mail move, he's like, ah, this, this isn't relevant. doesn't right. relate to what I care about. Yeah. And it may not, like I said, it may not be written down, but a lot of times sellers go through the motions like you were not pointing your finger at you for, Andrew, for the Hyatt thing. But you, know, you would have thought at some point your sellers would have said, why are we even competing on this deal? Right. If they'd really been asking the right questions, why are we continuing to invest time? Because clearly it took a lot of investment to yeah, respond to an RP and so on. Is yeah, if you don't find that out, for me, that's such an early stage qualifier. If we can't make the connection with the right people to find out what that one thing is that's driving it, then I want to sit back and say, why are we still competing on the deal? I'll I'll continue on this. I could take it in one of two ways, but I guess I'll say kind of the quick thing on the closed one versus loss analysis that I found is, most times sellers are underestimating all of the good things that they did well in a deal that they lost. So they don't mm-hmm. continue those things. And the things that they won, they over attribute their own brilliance and their own skills. And it's like, I closed this as a result. <laughs> and so they're yeah. reading too much into one, not enough into lost. And part of my theory back to kind of the original question on on why is kind of why are they so off when they're trying to predict what mattered in the buying process? Mm-hmm is it comes from, have you ever heard of Nassim Taleb talking about taking advice from people? Yeah. He talks about this, like, be cautious of the alternative history where what somebody tells you, I succeeded in this way. In other words, the deal was won because of X, Mm -hmm. will be totally different from what actually was done if you look at their actions or past behaviors and what played out because they are attributing that success to something that it makes them seem good or in a favorable light, or they want to see themselves in this way, not necessarily in like a minute, they're trying to manipulate you and give you some false story. It's just kind of a human bias that takes over. And David, in your line of work, maybe you have a kind of a thought. Yeah. Psychology about that. Reps. Yeah. They just see themselves how they want to see themselves. And they put that into the storyline of what happened. Yeah. The fact that as human beings, we're trained from very early on to see the world from our point of view. And obviously that creates a number of biases. And one of the most difficult thing in a selling conversation is to be able to put yourself in the other person's seat and communicate from their point of view. And obviously one of the ways that you have to do that is you have to do the research to understand their world. What are the things they're trying to accomplish? What are the challenges that they're bumping up against and not being able to accomplish those goals? And then, of course, what can they do differently as a result of using your product or service? But it's so difficult. So I, one of the things that I suggest sales professionals do before they sit down and have a conversation to help them look at it more from the point of view of the buyer is to just answer a very simple question. How is the person that I'm having a conversation with, how are they going to be better off as a result of doing business with me? 
that would be the beginning of, again, just putting yourself in their worldview and their point of view, again, so you can have a more effective conversation. And, and Andy, that's why I love your story you shared, because you guys did that. Mm -hmm. And now we need to finish the story. Did you guys win that deal? Oh, yeah. With the cruise, <laughs> cruise line? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, I was trying to, I was trying to, the other day I was trying to put it in today's dollars. I mean, this was in 98, it was eight and a half million dollars then. So 25, $3 million deal in today's terms. And it was yeah. all about putting yourselves in the shoes of the decision maker that mattered most. Yeah. And, and it's was the CEO that was very, had a very specific need, which well, was and it's, to keep those casinos online. Right. This is a point I make to sellers all the time is I think we serve misteach this whole concept of empathy and to point David was making is we talk about, we dumb it down for sellers unnecessarily saying, look, is put yourself in their shoes. And it's like, feel what they feel. It's like, yeah, that doesn't give you any ammunition to solve their problems is, so I don't know if anybody's read Paul Bloom's book against empathy, which is a great book I recommend people, but basically draws distinction between cognitive empathy and compassionate empathy, which we all Compassion and empathy is the one we're all most familiar with is I can feel what you're feeling. But he says, yeah, basically makes the cases that doesn't help you solve a problem just to know how someone's feeling is this idea of the cognitive empathy, which is you understand why they feel the way they do. Because mm -hmm. now if I understand why you feel the way you do, then I can take a step to solve it, right? To help you. But we sort of teach sellers this broad brushed empathy, just sort of put yourself in their shoes. It's like, no, doesn't help you. You got to understand ask the questions. Why are they feeling that way? Andy, I feel like you just described why marriage is so hard for me. I feel like I give tons of cognitive empathy to my wife. Like, let's go, let's get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And all she actually wants is compassionate empathy. So sales is easier. Yeah. For me. Well, yeah. I think that's, there's something to that, right? People look at the world differently for sure. It reminds me of this YouTube video. Have you have you ever seen the YouTube video? It's not about the nail. It's a husband and a oh, wife yeah, talking, yeah. and she well, has a nail in her forehead. The forehead. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. like I, I really think he would feel better if we just got that. No, you're not hearing me. It's not about the nail, David. If you haven't seen that, you're. Have you seen that, David? I have. Yes. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's such a funny one. Yeah. Such a funny one. I want to get back to this like topic of win loss analysis because yeah, it's something Andrew, you and I have been talking about as as well as like who really should own this, right? Because as I'm spending more time getting familiar with the win-loss analysis business and so on, it's like, it's sort of historically sort of been in product marketing and it's like, I don't know, as a seller, it's like, if I'm running a sales team, if I had access to that information, I'd want it updated. I don't want access to it continuously because it's such great material to coach people on, right? Yeah. It's like, who should own win-loss analysis. It seems like it should be revenue teams, not product marketing. Yeah. And maybe, so maybe I can just give a little sure. bit of context on what we've seen at close right. and then Nate and Dave get your reactions to it because I tend to agree with you, Andy, but what's been fascinating is over the last six, six and a half years that we've been in business, sales teams have been shockingly slow at driving adoption of win-loss analysis. A lot of sales organizations, sales leaders have a tendency to think they know the answers to these questions, even though we can show them the data that's like, no, you don't know, or at least you don't right. report it correctly. So thus no one in your organization has the other teams have stepped forward to try and fill that void because you think about product management teams, like they're tired of hearing sales leaders storm across the office with some request, like for a deal that's like, we have to have this or we can't win these kinds of deals. They want to make calculated decisions about product roadmap. And so they want data and they want data from the buyers. Is it really product gaps? Why we lost these deals? Is there a trend around some need from a product standpoint that if we address, we're going to see an improvement to win rate. So product management teams need access to win loss data to make better decisions. And if they're not getting it from the sales team, then they just have to go take matters into their own hands. We have quite a few product management organizations that take the lead in owning and running win-loss for their organization. Um, the most popular center for win-loss, at least amongst B2B tech companies, has been product marketing. Um, product marketers sit at this cross-section of trying to influence product strategy, trying to get the word out about their product and drive the success of their product by influencing 
marketing campaigns and messaging, and also enabling the sales team to talk about the product effectively. And, and their whole purpose is to drive the success of the product line that they're assigned to. And a key KPI for them is becoming win rate. Are we winning more and more of the deals that we have in pipeline for this product? If so, I'm doing a good job enabling sales, driving product strategy and influencing messaging. So they're like, man, we need win-loss data to do a better job in our roles and to influence these other organizations to do the right things to strategically drive the success of the product. And if sales isn't going to deliver this data, we can't trust the CRM dropdown. We need to go and get this feedback from customers. So right. really this lag from sales teams to adopt it and drive it for their orgs and supply the rest of the organization with this data has led these other teams to step forward and try to drive it. But I just, it just doesn't feel right to me still as a sales, former sales leader. It's like, who owns win rate? Who owns these customer relationships? It's sales. So it's they need sales. to be doing it. Go ahead, Nate, so raise your hand. Go well, ahead. so I was going to ask on that, Andrew, is like, so a lot of people can benefit. There's product, there's marketing, there's sales. You need good data. Like it's a very complex piece of this. Have you ever seen an organization with a full-time, like at one FTE, purely dedicated to one loss analysis, kind of like we have user research teams, like full-time UX research staff, anybody within FTE just doing one loss analysis? Very rarely, but in certain cases, yes. There have been certain cases where there's been an entire team staffed. One of the big four consulting firms, for example, they have mm -hmm. a very developed win-loss practice internally that they've built over decades. And they view it as a competitive advantage that they do this and that their competitors don't. And there is a, an SVP who owns this initiative and it's his full-time job to drive it. And he has a team of people supporting. So it, it does happen, but it's extremely rare. Can you share with us how they use it? How they, because their consultants are out developing business. How are they using that to coach and, and skill, upskill the, the consultants and so on? Yeah, I can't speak too much to it because they're very like tight-lipped about sure. the program. So we've only had very high-level discussions with them about the possibility of them outsourcing this practice. Would there be valuable oh, okay. for them in having a third party represent them to their customers? Would it be valuable for them to have technology to support them? I imagine that it's it's influencing quite a few areas of the business, just like it does for any company influencing Product strategy, is there, sure. do they need to offer more services, greater breadth in what they're offering to their customers? Are they losing deals in certain segments or industries because they're underrepresented, undersupported? Do they need to hire different types of talent? But I don't know kind of the nuances or case studies of yeah. what they've actually changed as a business because we don't, we don't support their program. We've just talked high so level I, with them about it. I'm a little bit of a newbie in this area. And uh, candidly, uh, again, having worked with, uh, again, almost 200 companies, this conversation has not come up that much as far as studying win-loss data. So I guess my question back to you all is, what is the data that you need? How complicated it is and how can you simplify it and, and make it maybe easier for, it could be the sales rep, it could be the account management team, it could be customer success. Obviously, when you get done with a sale, somebody's going to have to set expectations inside of the company. Hey, here's what's important. It's a, these are the things, these are the KPIs. These are the outcomes that they're looking for, and we need to be able to track if they're actually going to uh, succeed. How complicated is it to get this win-loss data, and then how could you simplify it? That's you, Andrew. Yeah, good questions. Backing up a little bit, getting a little higher level, Andy's whole podcast, this whole podcast is about the importance of win rate as a KPI and sales leaders realizing that we need to be focused on win rate and driving win rate just as much as we're focused on top line pipeline generation. If we want to, if we want to increase revenue and hit quotas, we have more than one lever. It's not just generating more pipeline. It's doing more with the pipeline that we have. And so if you want to improve your win rate, how do you really strategically go about that? If you don't have data that you trust. That's telling you why your win rate is what it is. And that's what's leading, I think more companies to start asking about this as more companies do focus on win rate as a KPI that they can drive and control and they can influence, especially in a, in a tough macroeconomic environment, it might be a, a more promising area of focus for them to increase revenue than trying to generate endless more pipeline. And so the commitment to go get this data though, it does take quite a bit of effort and work to your point, Nate, about it. What would do companies have a, a full-time hire 
that's running this because it can be a full-time job. It, the, ideally, what would happen is that as a disciplined final step of the sales process for every one of your one and lost opportunities, you would have a process in place to go back to that buyer and solicit their feedback about why they made a decision and what influenced that decision, what they cared about, and then convey that information back to the rest of the org. And we're finding that more and more companies are looking to implement a disciplined process like that. Gartner just published a report earlier this year about win-loss analysis in which they cited that at least tech companies, the number of inquiries to Gartner about win-loss analysis has increased fivefold over just the last 12 months. So I think it's emerging as an area of focus for sales leaders. And maybe it's the noise that they're hearing from these product teams, product marketers saying, hey, we need this data. Can you help us get this data? Hey, we need access to the CRM. We need to know about all these won and lost deals. And they're starting to maybe see, hey, maybe we need to own this. Maybe we need to be more in the know. And now a word from Cognizant. Picture this, your revenue team armed with accurate B2B contact data that leaves missed opportunities and unreachable prospects in the past. Look no further than Cognizm, the B2B contact data provider that stands out with unwavering focus on data quality and coverage. Cognizm's U.S. data set alone offers two times more cell phone numbers than any other provider on the market. And it gets even better. 7 million human-verified cell phone numbers backed by a 98% accuracy rate deliver precision like you've never seen before. And if international business growth is on the horizon, Cognizm offers the most complete GDPR-compliant data in Europe, making your expansion dreams more attainable than ever. Customers like Drift have already experienced the power of Cognizm. In just 30 days, they proved ROI and now book 70% of their outbound meetings using Cognizm's cell phone data. But don't take our word for it. Get a free data sample and test the quality for yourself. Head over to Cognizm.com slash data sample to get your free data sample today. That's Cognizm.com slash data sample. So as a, a spin on the question for you, Andrew. So as part of collecting the data, let's say you're helping a team create like a do-it-yourself kit for one lost analysis. There's definitely a science that is pretty tricky to crafting questions. Like research teams spend a lot of time thinking about the right questions to ask and how to ask them. Are there maybe three, four favorite questions that you would say, hey, if you want to start doing this homegrown, use these are effective questions, ask them this way. Yeah, absolutely. We could spend a while talking about like effective interview strategy, but one thing you kind of jumped to as a conclusion is that you should be collecting kind of qualitative feedback from these buyers, which is true. You do need to ask them open-ended questions to tell their story. It's not like you send them a one question survey, like, hey, pick the reason from this list. Cause buyers even have a hard time narrowing it down right off the bat to the one thing that oftentimes it requires them to start describing the buying journey to help them verbalize and realize like what mattered most to them. So you want to take them on that journey. If you're doing an effective win loss interview with a recent prospect, you want to take that, their, them on that journey by probably starting out with some contextual questions where it's like, hey, why were you looking to evaluate a solution like this at this point in time? Or what problem were you trying to solve with solutions like these? And get that initial context and who was involved in this decision and kind of start there before moving into what was the decision that you made? Why did you make it? What were the factors that influenced your decision? What were your decision criteria? Like what were you what were the different factors you were evaluating these different vendors or solutions on? And then you can get deeper progressively because now they're in the moment now, they're remembering everything about the process, and then you can get more nuanced about, it t let's talk specifically about pricing. Let's talk specifically about the sales experience. Let's talk specifically about product requirements and your reaction to these. Hey, pricing, how did you react to the initial price quote? So the fact is, as you can tell as I'm talking, Oftentimes, if you get a buyer on the phone for a win-loss interview, it turns into a 25 to 30 minute conversation because these you know, B2B decisions are that nuanced and they have that much to share about their decision-making journey. So you, you and I need to have an offline conversation because one, no, no, seriously, one of the, one of the challenges that, that I have is that when a client engages with us to 
create a custom program uh, or, or a sales conversation playbook. Obviously, I'm talking to customers. I'm talking to their customers to say, why'd you buy? What influenced your decision? Um, so I'd love to connect offline and, and go a little bit deeper in this conversation. And ultimately, this could lead to uh, some introductions to some of the clients that I work with uh, to help them with this. And I'll send yeah. you my invoice for a referral fee. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> so I have a question, Andrew, because I've been spending some time looking at some win-loss interviews. And you know, one of our pieces of accepted wisdom these days is that decision-making is done by a committee of stakeholders and there's some level of consensus this is formed, blah, 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 blah. Whether again, separate point where that's actually what happens or not. But we know that you start the first question. So in, when you're doing win-loss interviews, how do you account for the fact that there's all these multiple stakeholders and which are the ones that you should be talking to? Yeah. Because you can't necessarily talk to all of them. Yeah, this is a great question. There's some practical factors that come into play because some feedback on a deal is better than no feedback mm -hmm. and not everybody agrees to participate. So just very practically speaking, it's like if you have a buying committee, if you know that four people were involved in making a decision on the, the buyer side, that just increases your chances that you'll get to talk to one of them. We see it's common to get like a 15 to 30% participation rate from buyers when you solicit this kind of feedback in an interview format. So if you've got four buyers, four individuals on that buying committee, you should invite all of them to give feedback because the chances are you only get one, but right. it's better to get one person's feedback. So you start there. If you could take your pick of the, of the litter and choose the person that you get to talk to, a lot of people think like, oh, we should talk to the economic budget holder mm -hmm. because they, they had the final like go, no go decision-making authority. And there's definitely value in that. But what's interesting that we've found is in many cases, those individuals are very loosely involved in the evaluation process right. and only brought in very at the very end. And Prover, so not deciders. Yeah. So like what we found is actually that we get the most robust feedback and well-rounded view from whoever was the primary contact for the sales rep during the sales process, because that individual has had to coordinate with mm -hmm. all the various internal parties to then communicate with the seller. And even though they might not be the final budget holder or the final decision maker, or even have that much weight in the final decision, they are an influencer, they're involved, they're communicating with all the parties and they can kind of relay at least what they perceive to be happening across that whole buying committee. Whereas if you talk to one of the other individuals, they may be less aware of what all the various parties were, were thinking, but. Right. It, it reminds me of this pretty interesting write-up from the CEO of a company called Carta that's in kind of the equity management space. Right. And he had this feeling where he's like, I'm the CEO, but I don't think this is how decisions get made across the company. Like people come to me, they seek my opinion and so on. And he's like, there's something else that is happening. In other words, the way decisions unfold rarely tracks with the hierarchy, the corporate. And so he did this survey of all employees asking questions like, hey, when a project is really important to you, who do you trust for advice? Like, who do you turn to? And what they found is that across the entire organization, there was something like nine individuals that represented influence over 70% of the decisions that were being made. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating Love is that. if they took out and just included manager level or below, the difference in in coverage or influence only dropped from like 70% to just over 60%. His point was like, there's this shadow org chart, which maps how influence and decisions actually get done. And it goes back to your kind of original point on the way that buying by committee and consensus kind of works. It's like, yeah, there's probably a committee, but there's probably two or three people that are driving everything that the committee is doing. And they're the people that actually create the decision. And it's not the economic buyer most times. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is familiar with this professor at the USC business school, not the comedian, Steve Martin, who yeah. wrote, a great, wrote a great book called Messengers, which people recommend people read. But he was commissioned to a study by what was then Discover Org prior to the Zoom Info merger and about this topic and he about buying committees and so on and one of his key findings was is that i'm paraphrasing is that hey in buying committees they're humans made of humans and the same dynamics that work when you get a bunch of humans together or a play there is that 
there's usually one or maybe two people who become dominant personalities within that group and have outsized influence over what happens. Yeah. Steve's phenomenal. And he's been way ahead of the curve on this win-loss analysis concept. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a Harvard Business Review article that he wrote back in 2011, I believe it was. Okay. And it's called, What's Wrong With Your Sales Training Program? And the number one reason, the number one flaw he explains about sales enablement programs is that the training curriculum isn't based on direct feedback from buyers about why they made their buying decisions. So how can you build effective training curriculum? To your point, David, about the way you guys approach your engagements with customers, you don't just rely on what your your clients and their sales leaders are telling you. Right. You're going out directly to those customers and talking with them. And that was his whole point was too many sales enablers or sales trainers are just crowdsourcing wisdom from the internal team. And they're not going and interviewing customers directly to find out why they make the decisions that they make. And I would also add one layer to it. It was a practice that before I left to found Fluent and I was running sales teams is during weekly sales team standups, we would bring in customers and buyers who recently bought to talk to the entire team. And so interviews are great offline because you can do it at scale. You can compile, look at patterns and so on. But man, it's like if if you run a sales team right now and you aren't bringing buyers in to talk live with your team, it's a huge miss. Yeah. Yeah. David, go ahead. No, I agree with what Andrew was saying. And you're giving me a lot of ammunition and a lot of ideas on, uh, again, how to more effectively interview these, these clients. And it's also, again, not surprisingly, based on our conversation, it's one of the things that our clients look forward to after we go through the interview process and talk with their customers, they're like, okay, what did they say? And what did you find out? Which again, leads me to think, why aren't they doing more of this as a process as far as collecting win-loss data? Yeah, that brings me back to a story I heard from one of my first managers when, yeah, so he's talking about fixing sales, blah, 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 blah. And he said, the solution to a sales problem is never found in the office. (laughs) Meaning you got to go talk to customers, right? Yeah. But just to tie two threads sort of together is they talk about certain jobs to be done theory and so on is, is, and I'm, as a huge believer in this, I've been for a long time is that the same idea about buyer feedback is I'll ask managers all the time or looking at hiring salespeople. It's like, I want to say, who are you trying to hire? Uh, we need hunter, closer, blah, 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 whatever the usual BS terms that are, that are used. And I said, have you ever asked your buyers what they need your salespeople to be? That's a great question. After all, they're basically, quote unquote, hiring us to help them make this decision. What do they need from us? So what are the qualifications? What are the requirements they'd like to see from our sellers? Have they ever asked? And I've never had one person, I've probably asked this question at least a hundred times, not once. Somebody said, yeah, we did that. No, but it seems so obvious, right? Is this win-loss analysis, this voice of the customer can be used not just for strategy and sales enabling purposes, but also hiring. Yeah. And it's interesting to see in the feedback, the themes that surface from buyers around the sales experience and what they do and don't appreciate about uh, the buying experience and working with the sales team. Like it's very often that themes like trust emerge as Mm -hmm. a critical factor. Do we trust the individual that's selling to us? Is the individual that's selling to us a thought leader, a consultant to us that you know, to the point that was made earlier, I think it was you, Andy, like, are they getting value through the sales experience? Because the sales leader, the sales rep is providing value in the way that they are coaching and enabling the buyer in their journey, whether or not they end up purchasing, do they come away better off because of what they learned and the support that was provided by that rep, the thought leadership, the guidance, et cetera. So the world we know is changing around how buyers want to be sold to and what they appreciate and sales reps need to be adapting to that. Yeah. I go so far as to say is maybe we should change the label sales is because really what buyers want is buyers want help in making a decision. So if you ever feel like you're in this position where actually you feel like you're selling as opposed to helping, then the buyer experience probably isn't very good. I don't think the term is going to catch on, but if we replaced sales representative with buyer enabler, that would be pretty cool because that's essentially what you're doing. You're trying to enable them to make progress in the buying journey. 
I just don't think it has a ring to it. I'm a buyer enabler. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not very sexy. All uh-huh. right, guys, thank you so much for joining me. We've run out of time, but just want to give everybody a minute to tell people how they can connect with them. David, how can people reach out and connect with you and learn more about what you do? Yeah, the easiest thing would, uh, would be to go to our website, mastermessaging.com. There's obviously a lot of information about the, uh, the work that we do, the clients that we've worked with, and an also an opportunity to grab uh, the newly released book, 6X, Convert More Prospects to Customers. Um, so yeah, mastermessaging.com. Perfect. Nate, you're all over LinkedIn, Nate. And go to LinkedIn, Nate Nasrallah. You'll find me there. I, I try to write every day on there. So it would be great to meet some folks on LinkedIn. And you produce some really good content there too. Thank you. Yeah. If you want to connect with me personally, LinkedIn's a great place. You find me on there, Andrew Peterson. If you want to learn more about closed and win-loss analysis, we've got we've actually got a cool offer at freebuyerinterview.com where we'll go out and if you're in sales, we'll go out and conduct an interview of a recently won or lost deal for you for free to help you see what you might learn with a win-loss interview strategy. So I like that. All right, everyone. Again, thank you. And uh, welcome to come back anytime. This is a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks, Andy. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. Uh, if you're enjoying this new podcast, ask you the favor of me. Leave a quick rating review on the show on Apple or on Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. Really appreciate you up with us. So thank you so much. And I want to thank my guests, Andrew Peterson, Nate Nasrella, and David Kirkjian for sharing their insights with us today. Don't forget also to subscribe to my weekly newsletter called Win Rate Wednesday. Over 50,000 sellers and sales leaders subscribe to receive my weekly newsletter. Each week, receive one actionable tip to help you improve your win rates. To subscribe, visit andypaul.com right there on the homepage. Again, finally, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>